What is the difference between your head and your heart? Between that which you understand and that which you love. Between that which you know to be true and that thing which your affections are set upon. How is it that having a right understanding of God and the Gospel in your mind can draw our heart to rejoice in God? About 500 years ago, there was an Augustinian monk who was living the life of brutal self-depravity. In the wintertime, he would sleep on the floor of his cold stone cell without blankets. He would starve himself. He would beat himself until he was bloody and his flesh was torn asunder. And this God that he strove to love, he grew to hate because he could find no forgiveness of sins. And how could he love such a God who would have no mercy upon him? He had done everything right up until that point. He had started a career in law and he gave it up. He could have been a town constable, but he gave that up. And even that, so he joins the monastery. There were five monasteries in his town of Erfurt, and he joined the hardest one, the Augustinian monastery, monastery where he took up the life of poverty, obedience, and chastity. Poverty, obedience, and chastity. He took those vows until death. Yet no matter what he did, he could not find peace because he was a sinner. He was like you. He was like me. Wretched sinners before a holy, sovereign, and all-consuming God. We're going to be turning to Romans 1. If you want to go there now. And we're going to see that in the midst of this this anguish, in the midst of this self-agony, of this self-hatred, in the midst of this self-torture, came the light, the clear, beautiful light of the Gospel. As Martin Luther read these words from Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are all spiritual beggars. We come to You in our brokenness and our sin and our our vileness and we ask that You would have mercy on us. We pray that You would reveal Yourself in this time, that these words which can in some way bring so much condemnation. God, I pray that we would see them as Your glorious light and Your beautiful truth in our lives, God. I pray that we would throw ourselves at Your feet and find mercy and find grace in You and You alone. Amen. It's kind of the main point that we're going to be driving at today is that Jesus Christ... 
Jesus Christ alone is your righteousness. It's the main idea. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. In verse 16, we're going to see the universality of the gospel and how Jesus Christ being our righteousness means that it's for everyone. So you see the universality of the gospel. And then in verse 17, we're going to be looking at the righteousness of God. These, these words that haunted Luther for so many years. They just haunted him. We're going to be looking at those in verses 17. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the end of verse 17. The righteous shall be, live by faith. What does that mean? Living by faith. This, this quote from the prophet Habakkuk. So the main idea, Jesus Christ is your righteousness. Not you, not yourself. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is your righteousness. We're going to see how that flows out into the universality of the gospel. How all of the nations can look to this one. We're going to see the righteousness of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Then finally, this quote from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. What What does that mean to us today? So number one, on the the universality of the gospel, we're just going to read this verse 16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now here in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, it's good to be reminded that He's writing to a church that he did not plant, he did not start this church, and he's never actually been there. But he wants to go there. If you go up a little bit, we see in the end of verse 13, he wants to go there so that, quote, I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among some of the rest of the Gentiles. And then we see in verse 14, why does he want this? For Paul is obligated to both the Greeks and the non-Greeks. So then we see in verse six or verse fifteen, it's because of this obligation to both Greeks and non Greeks that Paul wants to go to this city of Rome. And it's it's the economic, it's the cultural, it's the government and the military centered all in one of the Roman Empire that covered the world the known world, it's all centered in Rome. So you, you have the finance hub of, of like New York or London. It's in this city. You have the military power of Beijing or D.C. And all that governmental power. It's in that city. Or you have the cultural sway of, of Paris or New Delhi or L.A. and Hollywood. It's all in that city. It's all centered in one metropolis. And that is where Paul is longing to go. Why? And we see that come out in the next verse, in verse 16. He's not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So we have this idea of salvation. And it's characterized, praise God, we're saved, right? Okay, what what are you saved from? So we see this salvation is characterized by something that we're saved from, but also something that we're saved unto as well. So what are you saved from? This all-consuming wrath of God that is coming. So maybe you've uh, done some surfing or some body surfing, and you, you try to catch the wave 
we, we were in San Diego this week, so that's why it's fresh. We were, we were, so you try to catch this wave, and you're coming up, and you're, you try to catch the wave, but you get too far ahead, and pretty soon it's the wave that catches you. And this wave that's not really that big can just pile you right into the sand, drive you right into the rocks, and you are helpless. There is nothing you can do. You can cover your head, but you, you can come up bloody with your ears and drums burst, and it's devastating. There's nothing you can do. You're at the mercy of this wave. A wave. A small little wave in some obscure beach in some small ocean. On some planet that's hidden amongst the array of this galaxy that we have. And we can't stand before this before this wave, if we're nothing, if we're at the mercy of this wave, how much more, my friends, are we at the mercy of God? The one who has created all of the galaxies, so the one that sustains all of these galaxies. But not only are we, we saved from that, if you are in Christ, but we're saved unto something that's even more marvelous, something that's even more beautiful. The all-consuming, not wrath of God, but the all-consuming love of God. So we're saved from death and we're brought to life. We're saved from our sins and in Christ we will be holy and set apart to God. We are saved from the wrath of God and then we are brought into the presence of God that we might delight in His radiant glory forever. That is what the Gospel is about. It's the power of God for salvation. Not to give you a better life right now. That's not it. Just to save you from this coming wrath of God against your sin as you stand in rebellion against God to bring you into His presence forever. So what do you do, right? You repent. You repent of your sins. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside, every one, and gone his own way, as we see in Isaiah. Later in Romans, in chapter 3, Paul writes that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one has done good. You think maybe I have done? No, this is you. No one has done good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues not to worship God. No, they use their tongues for deceit. The venom of vipers is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not the story of other people, my friends. That is the story of you, if you are not in Christ. That is the story of all of us before we are in Christ. So if you are not in Christ, your whole life is a testimony of your rebellion against God. Even your good works, my friend, even your good works, what are they? They're you trying to justify your own existence. So in selfishness and in pride, we do what we think is good. 
we don't turn to God that He might do it through us. So we repent and that we believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And this is, so this is the great seemingly paradox of the Christian, of the Christian faith. So the man says, I'm good with God. I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I'm, everything's okay. I, I don't need Him. Then you, re, you respond, really? Um, look at your actions. Your life is evidence that you deny your love for God by the way you live. You deny your love for God by the way you live. So then the man goes, okay, so I want to be right with God. Which one of these actions, what do I need to do? What do I need to shape up? Oh, no, no, no. At that point, don't worry about your actions. Believe. Believe. So your actions can be evidence of your brokenness with God, but they can never be the means by which we, have, we heal this broken relationship we have with God. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But we see these words were not written for Abraham's sake, but for you and for me also. And it will be counted to us who believed in Him who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins, and believe in Christ. So the, power, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We see that. Saved from sin and brought to life. For everyone. For everyone who believes. And this is why Paul wanted to go to, the, to, go to Rome. It had Jews, it had Greeks, it had Scythians, it had the German barbarians, it had the Franks who had come in as well. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation was all centered in that town. Kind of reminds you of some other town in southeast Minnesota where the nations are coming. We should rejoice, my friends, at the opportunity that God has given us in this town. That in this small, obscure town, we have the nations coming to us. Paul wanted, he longed to go to Rome, and we have Rome right here with us. Friends, we have a unique opportunity to go to the nations and not leave our own town. What a marvelous thing. What a marvelous thing that God is doing. And I pray that we would be faithful in reaching out to these nations. So this is the the universality and the exclusivity of the Gospel. It's universal because it's for everyone, for everyone who believes. But it's exclusive because it's only for those who believe in Jesus Christ. So it's universal for everyone who believes. Red, yellow, black, white, for husbands, for wives, for children, for parents, for slaves, for masters, for the Pharisee or for the publican, for the self-righteous or for the self-loathing. And this is why the church has historically, not even every instance, but has historically been, when the gospel has been preached, the church has been the true picture of diversity. 
So the gospel doesn't care about your skin color, about your affluence, or of your humble origins. The gospel does not care. And here's the beautiful part. The gospel doesn't really care who you are. Black or Asian or white. The gospel doesn't care. But the gospel also overcomes what you have done as well. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So you look up this word in Greek, everyone. You know what it means? It means everyone. <laughs> That's what it means. Everyone who believes. So regardless of what you have done in your past, the power of God that comes forth in the Gospel is not hindered. Regardless of what you have done. Take a look. So Matthew, uh, Adam preached through the genealogy of Matthew. Look at these characters. Abraham, pagan idolater. Isaac, he rebelled against God and tried to give the inheritance to Esau rather than Jacob. And you have Jacob, the used car salesman of the Old Testament, right? He's, he's attempting to swindle everybody he can at every given chance, right? And, and on top of that, he has a favorite wife of a multitude of wives, and he has a favorite son of a multitude of sons. And then you have his son Judah, who conspired to kill his brother. And on top of that, he, he had sex with his daughter-in-law. But he, it's terrible, but he gets a little bit of a pass because he thought she was a temple prostitute, right? So he, he, he gets a little bit of a pass for that. Then you have Tamar, his daughter-in-law. She's the one who's pretending to be a temple prostitute. Then you have Rahab, who actually was a temple prostitute. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, everyone who believes. And perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking... If God had only known what I've done, no, if you had known what I've done, you would know that there's no mercy. If you've had an abortion in the past, or you've gotten a girl pregnant and you've paid for her to have an abortion and you've told nobody. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Or you've, you've stumbled in your past with infidelity. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or if you struggle with same-sex attraction, the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or if you struggle with pornography or whatever it might be, whatever sin you might find yourself enslaved to, my friends, the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no distinction for all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if you're here and you're sitting and you're wondering, can there be grace for me given what I've done? The answer is yes. 
your cup overflows with the grace of God if you believe in Him. So friends, we've seen this, the universality of the Gospel as it's going forth. Jesus Christ is a righteousness. So all of the nations are going to look to Him. So the Gospel is for everybody. Because our righteousness is in Christ. So regardless of, of our race or what we have, might have done in the past, we see that the Gospel is for us and will bring us salvation. Now in verse 17... We're going to be looking at the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. I'm just going to reread those two verses. Verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here was Luther... Um, he, was, he was caught in a storm, and as one can be terrorized by a small ocean wave, Luther was terrorized by this lightning strike that came down right beside him, knocked him over, and he's crying out at that moment, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Well, St. Anne didn't save him, but he was saved, and he did become a monk. So he goes into this monastery where he is continually haunted by his sin. Haunted by his sin. And he's not like so many of us. When we're haunted by our sin, we just just distract ourselves and and go on to the next thing, right? But no, he wrestled with us. And it was in this darkness that Luther read these words. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. How haunting it had been to Luther. This this righteous perfection of God. Luther had read the text the way that men had for a thousand years been reading this text. This righteousness of God, this perfection of God was unattainable for us poor sinners. So what do you do? You turn to indulgences. You turn to sacraments. You turn to the blessings of a priest. Because you know you can't obtain this perfection of God, this this righteousness of God. So what what is it? At the root, it's the, the righteousness of man. And this is so ingrained in us, even from diligent parents. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. You screwed up? Well, that's fine. Say you're sorry. But then do the right thing. Right? And it's your works that make you righteous. So when you fall short, what do you do? You pull yourself up and you work even harder. And this isn't true to us. This is true across time. Aristotle in his works, the, the third book in the Ethics, he, he, he makes it clear that a man's righteousness follows his works. So look at a man's works, and from that he will be righteous. That is to say, the works of a man are his righteousness. That's the understanding. The works of a man are his righteousness. And they're so close. These words are so close, but they could not be further from the truth that we see in the Gospel. For it's not the works of 
a man, but it's works of the man, Jesus Christ, who is not my righteousness, but He is our righteousness. So yes, we do look to a man, but we don't look to ourselves. We look to Christ and to Christ alone. So, friends, it is not the condemning righteousness of God that we see here in verse 17. It is the saving righteousness of God that we have in Christ Jesus. So going back to the intro, Luther's mind understood this and his heart rejoiced. And this God that he feared and grew to hate, he now loved. He now loved. And all of these times and throughout history and throughout so many years of our lives, we've been looking to ourselves and it's natural. We try to justify ourselves. But we must not seek a righteousness that is found here on earth, but rather, my friends, we must find this righteousness that has come down from heaven in Christ Jesus to seek and save the lost. So then the righteousness of God does not come to condemn us, but rather it saves us. It's it's this legal, it's a forensic, it's this declarative term where God is here as the judge and He looks down at us, guilty, poor beggars that we are. Guilty before the righteous judge and He says, not guilty. Not guilty. Because He no longer sees our sin, but He sees the righteousness of Christ if you are in Christ. He sees the perfection of His beloved Son. So it's no bleeding bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest, as Isaac Watts wrote. Jesus, my God, Thy blood alone hath power sufficient to atone. Thy blood can make me white as snow. Nothing else could cleanse me so. We turn to others so often. We turn to ourselves. But friends, it's only in Christ. He alone is your righteousness. So, um, why do you care? Right? Throughout this next week, why, why do you care? This, primarily, when you're able to look to someone else instead of yourself, when you're able to look upon Christ for your identity, for your, for your righteousness, for your justification, when you're able to look to Him, you have peace. You finally have rest for your soul. So even if you're a Christian, you have to ask yourself, how much of my life and how many of my struggles are spent trying to justify myself before God and before others? For me, personally, I have this life of angst. That there is just not enough that can be done. And so I'll stay up to one or two, sometimes three in the morning, and then get up several hours later. Adam, Adam gets my 3 a.m. emails and he, he rebukes me for them. <laughs> Rightfully. And 
And it has this veneer of being a workaholic. Who, who wouldn't applaud someone who tries to get so much done? But at the root of it, you have to wonder, how much is it where I'm trying to justify myself still? Where I'm, I'm looking to myself, I'm trying to justify myself before God and before others. Or women. To, I mean, it is, uh, today's culture is unbearable. Truly unbearable. You act a certain way. You're supposed to look a certain way. That's not humanly possible, but you're supposed to look that way. And if you don't, we'll take a pill or have surgery. You care for your children, and then you have the perfect home. And then, on top of that, keep a smile. Be sure to keep a smile so that everybody knows it just naturally happens, right? That it's not you struggling. And with your children, make sure they have cloth diapers until they're two. And by then, they should be potty trained, so then you don't have to worry about it. And it goes without saying that what the food you eat should be organic and not processed, and probably 20%. That's a baseline of what should come from your own garden, at least. And, and if they get sick, if they get sick, don't take them to Sean. Don't take them to the doctor. Just put oils on them, right? And then they should miraculously get better. And if they don't, it's only because you're a terrible parent, right? That's the only reason why. You must have lack of faith in these oils that miraculously heal things. And that's not even to mention the homeschooling or music lessons or sports that we push our children into. And I just wonder how much of this is all of us still striving to justify ourselves. Because we look to ourselves and we look to our children to find some justification. So we pushed them and pushed them and pushed them that they might have successful careers and they might be good parents rather than praying with them and pointing them to Christ. So we do music lessons so they can do well and get a scholarship instead of leading worship. Because we're trying to justify ourselves. Or we work anxiously trying to to get the next promotion or publish the next paper. Speak at the next conference. Why? Because we're trying to justify ourselves. Even if we are in Christ, we have this natural tendency to look to ourselves rather than the righteousness that we find in Jesus Christ. So we've seen, my friends, that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And this is displayed through the saving work of the Gospel for everyone who believes. Regardless of your skin color or where you come from or the sins that you have in your past, the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we've also seen this righteousness of God, that it is not the condemning righteousness of God that just oppresses us. No, my friends, it is the saving righteousness of God. The righteousness of God that is found in Christ Jesus. That is the Gospel. So finally, we're going to be looking at this phrase, how the righteous will live by faith. So let me just, just two verses, let me read them again. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the context of this quote is from the prophet Habakkuk, who was a prophet around right before the Hebrew people went into exile with, into Babylon. And it's this, this, one of my favorite Old Testament letters, it's this beautiful interchange where you get to see the heart of the prophet. You see him dialoguing back and forth with God. And so you see this heart of the prophet just laid bare that we're able to see and see what it is. So it starts out where he's decrying out to God the conduct of the people, of the world around him. Not only of them, but of the priest as well. The people who were supposed to be holy and set apart to God are living this life of lustful sin, just like the rest of the people. So Habakkuk's crying out to God and saying, How long, how long, O God? And then God responds in a very um, unusual way. He said, Yes, I, I hear your cry. And the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're coming. They're going to completely wipe everybody out. Obviously, this is not what Habakkuk had wanted. He was hoping for maybe a falling of the Spirit or repentance, as they see in the times of Hezekiah, that the law might be found again, that people would turn to God. But no, God answers it in this way where he says, destruction is coming. Just like that, with some great sound effects. And so in this, the great revelation comes that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. So then it's no longer a matter of Jerusalem or Babylon or being carried off into exile, but it's a matter of righteousness. And we see that the righteous will live. The righteous will live. And how are they going to do it? By faith. So you see this coupling always in the prophets and in Paul, this coupling together between righteousness and of faith. So you have this righteousness of Christ that we've been exalting and delighting in for the last half hour. But it means nothing apart from faith, my friends. It means absolutely nothing apart from faith. For the righteous will live by faith. So friends, we see that Jesus Christ, He and He alone is our righteousness. And we have the power of God brought forth in the Gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Whatever background you might have. We see this this righteousness of God comes down in Christ Jesus so that we are able to have peace. Imagine this, this, the peace you would have when you no longer look to yourselves, but you look to someone else. That you no longer strive for yourself, but you throw your feet at the, throw yourself at the feet of Christ. And finally, we rejoice that the righteous will live by faith. They will live by faith. No matter your settings, you will live and live. My faith. So friends, I pray that this righteousness of God would not be just some idea, but that it would be the righteousness that you long for. Where you can turn to Christ and be found in Him. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we, we look to You because we have none other. We have lives that are marred and we, we, our lives are narratives of our rebellion against You, of how we strive to justify ourselves, but we cannot do it, God. I pray that You would reveal Yourself as a merciful God to us. That we would rest and find delight in the righteousness that comes from You and You alone. Amen.